Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. All my day. Stephanie Gibault, in June 2008, was ordered by one of her managers at the UBS Bank in Paris to destroy all her computer files that related to customers with offshore accounts in Switzerland. The order came in the wake of the 2007 American banker Bradley Birkenfell's disclosure of client information to the U.S. Department of Justice that suggested that UBS was facilitating massive tax evasion schemes for its American clients, which ultimately led to a penalty of $780 million. Swiss banks have long been havens for those seeking to avoid taxes. In 2014, for example, Credit Suisse, which would also plead guilty to sheltering money for its clients uh, so they could avoid paying taxes, had to pay $2.6 billion in penalties. Gibo, however, was the only bank employee at UBS who refused to delete her files. She protested to UBS management and French regulators. Her documents would eventually help to identify 38,000 offshore bank accounts amounting to $12 billion. UBS responded by trying to fire her as part of a mass redundancy of 100 employees during the 2008 financial crisis. The French Ministry of Work intervened, but her life at UBS became excruciating. She suffered harassment and discrimination, along with social and professional isolation. She endured constant anxiety and depression. UBS fired her finally in 2012. She was sued for defamation by the bank after writing her book, The Woman Who Knew Too Much, part of a series of lawsuits that plague her to this day. She requested compensation, totaling 3.5 million euros. The judge gave her 4,500 euros, which barely covered her legal fees. UBS was eventually forced to pay a record fine in 2019 of $4.9 billion. But Jibo found herself financially ruined and blacklisted from the financial sector where she had spent her career. The French legal system does not compensate whistleblowers, unlike the United States. The Commodities Future Trading Commission, for example, recently awarded an anonymous whistleblower around $200 million for providing information about Deutsche Bank's manipulation of the LIBOR benchmark. Birkenfeld, who exposed UBS's offshore accounts for American clients, was handed a check from the U.S. Treasury for $104 million minus taxes. Gibo is currently battling in the French courts to become the first legally recognized whistleblower, which could pave the way for greater protection and compensation. Joining me from France to discuss global banking, fraud, the fate of whistleblowers, and her case is Stephanie Gibault, author of The Woman Who Knew Too Much and Whistleblowers, The Manhunt. Let's go back to UBS, to the culture which you knew well, uh, because I think it sets the stage for what happened. You uh, were working with some of the wealthiest, most high-profile clients at the bank, but describe what you did, describe the culture. 
Thanks for uh, your invitation, Chris, and, and good afternoon to, to you and to everyone. Uh, at UBS, I was in charge of uh, marketing and communication. I was hired in Paris in 1999, so you know, almost 25 years ago, when the bank was opening in France. Because as you know, UBS is a Swiss bank. It used to mean Union Banks of Switzerland. And uh, they opened in France at the same time as they opened in Spain because uh, the Swiss were anticipating that both France and Spain would uh, follow suit to the Italian government headed by uh, Berlusconi by that time, who had done a scudetto um, fiscale, which means that uh, Italy allowed all their uh, offshore uh, <laughs> citizens, I mean, uh, citizens who had offshore accounts to bring them back without penalties. So I was hired by the French uh, subsidiary and uh, I was here to promote the image of the bank and the budgets I had were quite important and I was managing uh, VIP events such as, uh, you know, uh, VIP tickets uh, for the Football World Cup, for the Rugby World Cup, for uh, tennis tournaments. I was uh, in charge of uh, having private concerts for the clients, uh, fashion shows for the clients, and uh, everything was really you know, tailor-made because the clients UBS deals with are the wealthiest people on the planet who can obviously buy everything. The only thing that they cannot buy is emotion. So if you offer them a concert with a very famous star, then they can have a drink or have dinner with this person. And obviously it creates lots of uh, uh, emotion. Uh, another example, if you have a Ferrari, you are not allowed to drive on the Maranello circuit in Italy. But with UBS, you can because of the partnership with the brand. And there are a couple of examples I'm giving you. And uh, my job was somehow to travel all over the country and uh, develop partnerships, visit uh, places, and find ideas to entertain the clients and prospects, which means uh, try and find new clients. And this is what I've done for almost 10 years, from 1999 until 2008, and 2008 is like uh, the year where my life has stopped because, as you said earlier, uh, I was asked to delete the content of my archives of my uh, computer, uh, and namely my, my boss. Uh, has asked me to delete the name of all the clients uh, who had been invited on those events for ten years. What were the purpose of the events? Were they were they were they events to recruit them to invest more money? Was it just a reward? Uh, was it to make them feel like part of a family? What what was the purpose? It's the the, the three of them um, in uh, retail. Marketing, if you sell a bottle of water, a bottle of whatever, 
you know, uh, it could be a one shot. And if, you know, a client drinks a bottle in a hotel or at a restaurant and he never comes back to this brand, it's not a big deal. But in uh, wealth management, you work on the wealth of the families, you know, from generation to another. So you have a long-term perspective, which means that your clients must trust you and the notion of confidence between the bank, the name of the bank, and the name of the banker is of utmost importance. It's extremely important to understand that and to understand that once you have a client who is obviously extremely wealthy, his contacts, his families, his partners, all are very wealthy and they can bring them to the bank as well. So obviously, if my job as a marketing person is to offer them top-notch events, tailor-made events, according to whether they like tennis or opera or whatever, football, rugby, uh, golf, if you are able to target them on what they love, they will obviously think that the service of the bank in terms of handling their wealth will be the same. And obviously, you must know very well who your clients are. So the purpose of those events is at huge stake. It's not only to entertain and to have fun. <laughs> this is one side, and it is somehow what one can see from outside. But it's really making sure that the client trusts you because, you know, when you are very wealthy, you don't have one bank. You have several banks. And obviously, you share your wealth between different um, financial players. So it's important for the banks to play better than others. And UBS has always been renowned as the best bank in the world, the, the oldest wealth manager on earth. They are about 200, 250 years old. And uh, obviously, everyone who's wealthy knows UBS. The, the, the knowledge of the bank is really, really high. Um, so the stake of these events are obviously entertaining people, but it's obviously being very close to them and very, you know, very confident uh, relationship to make sure that obviously they will introduce the banker to the families and to their partners and develop more business. I want to ask about 2008. First of all, uh, when you were asked to delete your files, did you have a good sense, you'd been in the system, been in the bank a long time, of the amorality of the bank? Because, of course, what these were were offshore accounts, so they didn't have to pay taxes. The, French, the wealthy French investors didn't pay taxes like the wealthy American investors. Uh, it, or did that come as a shock? And then just explain briefly why you did not delete your files. What happens is that it's, it's extremely complicated, so I will try to make it simple. Um, I, have never been I have never received any trainings at UBS regarding offshore accounts about 
offshore banking, about money laundering, about tax evasion. I have never heard those words. Believe me or not, but I'm telling you the truth. I have never heard about that. You had a department working on uh, financial uh, optimization. But I am not a banker, and I was not working with those people, so I had no idea what it could be about. But number two, I was working with the president. I was working with the general manager, because they are the ones who, you know, sign for my budget. And uh, they have always told me that us, UBS in France, refer to the French authorities, which is Banque de France, Bank of France, um, the equivalent of the SEC uh, in, the, in the United States, uh, Autorité de Marché Financier, Autorité de Contrôle Prudentiel, this is the equivalent of the SEC, and that obviously UBS France respects all the rules. Why would I ever have questioned the word of my general manager and of my president? They are the ones I was working with all the time. And when I was asked to delete those files uh, in the summer of 2008, I could not understand that there was a problem with the content of my files. I thought that they wanted to get rid of me. In France, I've given lots of interviews where I was telling the journalist, but it's as if you're... Uh, publisher was asking you to delete all the press articles or all the videos or all the interviews you had done in your career. You would wonder why. It wouldn't make sense. So for me, it was the same. I was like, why are they asking me to get rid of my archives and of my computer files? So somehow I pulled a string, you know. I started asking questions. And what happened back in 2008, so it was before the big uh, financial crisis we had, is that in the United States, your country, UBS, was going under lots of stress. Let me remind you two things. First, you had the subprime crisis. And UBS was the bank, the non-American bank, the most involved in this subprime crisis. This was UBS Investment Bank. Then, all of a sudden, we heard about the Madoff story. Madoff was also an American person who was, you know, um, who had created this Sponzi scheme and uh, who made lots of clients lose money. I can't remember the, the figure, isn't it? $62 billion. And we heard by the media that UBS in Luxembourg was the one managing the fund, which was another shock. And this was the asset management bank. But UBS' third pillar is the wealth management pillar, which is the oldest one, which has you know, helped to develop the reputation of the bank worldwide. And because of Bradley Birkenfeld, we all heard the news, you know, by that time we're opening the newspaper in the offices, and we all heard, we all read, Tony flabbergasted, 
that this American guy who was working for UBS in Geneva was helping his American clients cheat on taxes, that he was even hiding diamonds within toothpaste when he was uh, going through the customs, you know, hiding diamonds for his clients in toothpaste. I mean, it's a James Bond movie. And you're like, but what is that? What, what is the bank I'm working in? It's, you know, like the Titanic, but it's not one iceberg, three icebergs at the same time. And at the same time, we're all very busy. You know, at UBS, you're busy 500% of your time. So as I was going from one place to another, I did not pay attention to all that until I realized that something was not right anymore. A bank like UBS is a bit like a submarine, you know, to give you an image. Everything has partitions that somehow you never know what your neighbor in the office on your left or in front of you, on your right, or even your colleague. You don't know what they do on a daily basis. There is no exchange between people. And somehow, because of this uh, compartmentalized uh, structure, I understood that these schemes were possible. I would never have imagined that the most powerful bank in the world was doing worldwide what somehow Birkenfeld was declaring it was doing. For me, Birkenfeld, and for many people, Birkenfeld was someone who was a bit strange, you know. Uh, why would you declare that you help your client uh, cheat taxes? It's very strange. And somehow, at the beginning, we all thought that it was an American story. Until, obviously, media do their work. Sometimes they do it better than others. But all the news were on UBS in the US, but in Europe as well, because of the subprime crisis, because of Madoff, because of the financial crisis as well, and because of uh, Birkenfeld. Before Birkenfeld, nobody had heard on an international scale talking about tax evasion and the way he was explaining it. So what happened? Because UBS obviously is a big structure and is able to defend itself and is able to be surrounded by very good advisors. UBS has changed all their procedures. And somehow, because of the Birkenfeld story, we in France, but the same in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, in Portugal, in the US, in Belgium, in Germany, in Israel, in Argentina, well, everywhere where UBS had offices, all the procedures changed. And as far as I'm concerned, one day I received a document saying that Swiss bankers could not meet their clients in the Paris office anymore. And I understood that I could not talk to my Geneva colleagues anymore. That was forbidden. But because it's extremely um, you know, structured, you never have the full picture. Only the top knows. I, I want to stop there. I, I just want to stop there because 
I don't want to, I want to make sure we get everything in what they've done to you afterwards. So you, pro, you don't destroy your documents. You give your documents to French regulators. They are used, those documents are used to uncover fraud. They try and fire you. Talk about the three years you spent because it, I, I remember you saying that it, it, in some ways you've never even recovered from that daily social isolation, harassment, discrimination. Talk about those three years and then let's go into what they have done to you since because they have not let up. I mean, even up to last week, they have not let up in terms of using their legal resources to make your life miserable. And then, of course, you've been blacklisted. You can't work within the financial sector at all. Well, many whistleblowers may have this, may use the same words as the one I'm going to use. You kill the messenger. You don't talk about the message of the messenger. So at UBS, I all of a sudden became a black sheep. I was the one to be eliminated because I started asking lots of questions. And in a bank like UBS, you do not ask questions. You just have to comply with the rules, the rules of the bank, even if they are illegal. Though. Uh, so I suffered terribly. I was supposed to be made redundant in 2009, but because of the Minister of Work said that I had to stay within the bank, uh, as a mother of two kids, I was suffering a depression. Uh, I could not even look for a job somewhere else. I was really low, you know. I was in a state of weakness. I was crying all the time. So, as you said, I was harassed, isolated. I remember entering the cafeteria, and, you know, I had colleagues at the cafeteria. When I was entering, all of them were leaving. Or if I was having a coffee on my own, when someone was entering, he or she was leaving. It's a state where all of a sudden, it's as if you were not a human being anymore. It's as if you were, I don't know. Um, hmm. A leper. Yes. You, 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 you see that instructions are being given to people that if you dare approach her, your future will be the same, which means no future. So obviously, the culture of fear, the culture of, you know, of a stress is everywhere in the world. We, we can see that in many multinational companies and all the ones who have tried to speak up in any multinational companies, not, not only in banks, have suffered the same fate. It's you know, you are the black sheep. So I suffered terribly. I, I had to stop working. I was, you know, under medication. I and I had to raise my kids. They were quite quite young by that time. It's been ex extremely difficult. And uh, I would have thought because everyone knew me at the bank. Somehow I had a fun work compared to the others who are bankers or financial advisors. You know, which are or you know, or you have all the controlling accounting departments which are totally different from my mission so everyone knew me everyone always needed an umbrella or golf tees or a cap you know because UBS was sponsoring Alinghi the, uh, America's Cup um, uh, regattas etc I always had someone in my office asking 
or something. I had a very social job, very nice position. And all of a sudden, you don't travel anymore. You are not allowed to see anybody. You are not allowed to send an email to your colleagues to inform them of the program of the week or the newsletter, etc. So what is the core of your life, what is the core of your job, is taken away from you. So instead of dying as you would die with a bullet in your head or with a general cancer, you die little by little, step by step. Your identity is being taken away from you. Your job is being taken away from you. You do not attend the meetings anymore because you are not invited anymore. You do not travel anymore, although you are traveling all the time. Um, and little by little, you are the shadow of yourself. I, I want to, Stephanie. I want to stop. I want to stop there and just first of all, I don't believe any of the major bank figures who orchestrated the tax fraud. Although UBS had to pay fines, their careers. Uh, were not only not disrupted, but many of them were promoted. Am I correct? Absolutely. And this then, set, and then I, I want to talk about what they've done to you since. So eventually they fire you from the bank. And then you have spent, and go all the way up to last week because you were in court last week, they have used the legal apparatus to just relentlessly go after you. And, and you don't have resources. Uh, to to pay these lawyers, I mean, it is so it's been financially draining, emotionally draining. Even though you win most of the cases, that's not the point. The point is to keep you tied up in court and keep you harassed. I think the message sent is to set an example. It's to it's to show others that somehow they are subjects not to talk, subjects. I mean, subjects not to discuss, subjects not to even think of. Because when people talk about tax evasion, whether they are politicians, whether they are NGOs, whether they are journalists, they talk about something extremely vague. When you name, a, you don't name a tax paradise. We don't know who's behind. We don't say which country. We don't. But here in France, I'm talking about a bank and I'm talking about people. And I'm talking about an experience I've had for 13 years. So I'm extremely precise in what I did. And this is why the French administration was able to find UBS, uh, as you explained in the introduction, uh, with the biggest fine ever um, a couple of years back. And you would think that this would lead to promote the work of the ones who stand up and who say, no, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be someone deleting files. I don't want to be someone uh, being made guilty or the accomplice of that. Because I feel in a, a complaint against UBS when I understood that my job, which was not only an entertaining job, but was helping uh, rich clients to evade taxes because Swiss bankers were not allowed to be on our territory, I should have been protected by the French state. I, 
uh, well, was put at risk by my company. Well, there was also, you were running out of time, but I mean, there were also a series of uh, disturbing incidents in your personal life, you being followed. I think at one point they broke into your apartment. You, we don't know who. I mean, these are kind of dark forces, but it's not just the legal harassment, but there was a, a very clear physical harassment uh, that one can suppose or suspect came from UBS. From UBS or some policemen have advised me from services. I will give you an example. My dog, our dog, was poisoned in our Paris apartment an evening when my son and I were having dinner outside at France. When we came back to the apartment, we found our dog laying in one of the corridors. All the lights of the apartment were on. Nothing was stolen, no drawers open, nothing was missing, except our dog laying in one of the corridors and all the lights on. So obviously the police came home, uh, they called all our neighbors, nobody has seen anyone, nobody has heard anything. But the weirdest thing is that we don't even know how they entered because our door was not broken, nor were the windows. And so some policemen came to me and said, but, you know, burglars don't do those things. It must be people who are very well trained. And we have ideas of who could have done that. So because of that, I had to write to the prime minister. I had to write to the minister, um, I mean, to the head of the police in France. And uh, we tried to understand what could have happened. And guess what, Chris? No answer. Let, let's just let's just close with last week. You you were in court again last week. What happened? What you have to understand is that I've been at court versus UBS for thirteen years, but this past six years I've also been at court versus the French administration. What we didn't have time to say is that as of two thousand and eleven, the French customs, which are part of the Ministry of Finances have asked me to work for them and give them very confidential information regarding the UBS clients, namely because I hadn't deleted my files. I worked with these people for more than a year in a weakened state. As I told you, I was extremely stressed with the situation at UBS. So they knew I was working on very sensitive information, on very sensible information, sorry. Um, and uh, that I was the mother of two children, and that obviously uh, working with them was for me, I mean, it was obvious that they would protect me because they are sworn officers. And somehow after I'd given them all what they wanted about the clients, the processes, etc., they threw me. They never did anything for me. So I took them to court and I won. I won and I was given a title of uh, uh, collaborator of the public service. So as a collaborator, you're supposed to be paid for your work. And also you're supposed to be protected. And they have since refused to pay me. So I had to take them to court again last year 
and I won another time, which was very good because the judge said the Ministry of Finances has to pay Mrs. Gibault for what she's done for your administration. And it's the first time in this period of six, 16 years, 13 years, uh, that they appealed the case. And last week, they won. The judge said that the Ministry of Finances was right, that when they argued that my information were not precise enough, that they already had my information, that the information I had provided was before 2017, and they haven't used it since. So that I would never get any reward for what I have done. And this is the worst, because I had always thought that my enemy was UBS. When I say enemy, it was the, 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 the entity I was fighting was UBS. But somehow, is UBS my enemy? Or is it the French state that used my information, that somehow abused uh, of the fact that I was in a weakened state to get all the information and then put me aside, while at the same time I was uh, given the status of whistleblower, and whistleblowers in France are supposed to be protected. And I was also given the title of collaborator of the public service, which are also supposed to be protected and rewarded. And a judge who's a woman, because this is what it is in this, you know, banking world of, of men and ministers, Three of finances, also lots of men whom I've seen them. And I was like, is it because I'm a woman that this happens to me? Uh, because we see all these international cases with all these men either turn out to be extremely rich or who have lots of support. Here in Europe, we can think of the Lucklicks, who ha you had two French guys uh, going to court in Luxembourg. And you had, you know, NGOs and media and politicians, left and right wing, supporting them. With me, there is absolutely nobody. And this is terrible. Uh, I am wondering what is going to happen in the next weeks because um, nobody knows who are those tech cheaters. Out of the list of 40,000 uh, offshore clients, Two stories have been public in France, and I will just name one of them for your auditors to understand. We had the Minister of Budget called Jérôme Cahuzac under François Hollande's uh, presidency, who was saying he was fighting tax evasion. But it happened that Mr. Cahuzac had an offshore account with UBS in Geneva. And guess what? Uh, it was a couple of millions of euros or Swiss francs, which were bribes, bribes from Big Pharma, namely from Pfizer, which helped to finance political parties in France. When you hear what I'm saying, it is so sensible that obviously no one, nobody, not even um, investigative journalists had dared touching this information yet. It's absolutely crazy because I'm asking for help and <laughs> nobody is here. 
There's absolutely nobody. So when my state, France, so-called country of human rights, says it protects whistleblowers, it protects people who are persecuted as a person, not only as a whistleblower, but as a mother, as a woman. I wrote to Francois Hollande several times saying, we have two guys. One is American, one is an Australian, one is Assange, and the other is Snowden, who have disclosed information regarding um, the fact that our country was being listened to um, and you do not um, protect them and you don't want to uh, offer them asylum. But isn't this very hypocritical? And there are no answers. And with all these laws that somehow protect whistleblowers, what sign is France showing everyone? Because there is something extremely tricky in my case. This is not normal. And what do you do once you have a file like mine? The only answer I think we can have is that I cannot handle the case anymore. Now it has to be in the hands of the French citizens because who is going to be a whistleblower after that? Who is going to be willing to help the French state? Who is going to believe that we are the country of human rights welcoming persecuted people with uh, what they've done to Assange and to Snowden, refusing um, the protection? It's very sad. I am, I am in a state of shock because somehow... Um, I do not know how things are going to be, you know, in the future. This is the culture of lies. We know it. We, we know it with WikiLeaks. You know, WikiLeaks um, celebrated its 17th anniversary yesterday. And obviously Assange is still in jail in, in England. But we know that wars are being made out of lies. But my story, it's another big lie. Um, it's a tyranny somewhere, you know, it's, I don't even have the words because it's not a question of justice. I mean, we, we all have to question what is ethical within the justice with a judgment like the one I received last week. You know, in France, when a judge um, pronounce a judgment, it is in the name of the people. Of France. And I declared to a French journalist, uh, is this judgment in the name of the French people, so somehow in my name, or is it in the name of the tax cheaters, which are so powerful that somehow they bribe our politicians and they bribe, you know, all the ones ruling our country? It's absolutely terrifying. Great. We're going to stop there. That was Stephanie Gibault author of The Woman Who Knew Too Much, as well as Whistleblowers, The Manhunt. I want to thank The Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 